Well, it's been a joy to have been with you these past three weeks, because uh, it's, it's, it's been so encouraging to, to preach the cornerstone and receive constructive feedback that, as a youth pastor, I really don't get. <laughs> and I certainly don't preach due to the encouragements, but it, it is something that has been a, a great joy to, to hear from you all and to help me become a better preacher each and every week. Um, as we look at Philippians, the theme that you find throughout the letter is the theme of joy. And it's, it's really striking that joy would be the theme because Paul here, he's writing this letter. And as he's writing it, he is imprisoned in, in, um, in, in a presumably Roman jail without knowing whether he's going to be released or whether he's going to be executed. But Paul comes to realize that his imprisonment is actually making Christ known to people in places that would not have even opened the doors to the gospel, like the imperial camp of the Roman Empire. And with the love and support that he's receiving from the church, he cannot help but rejoice even while he is in chains. And so this today, as we look at uh, Philippians chapter 1, there, there are similar themes that we'll cover if you, were with, if you was, uh, were with us last week when we covered Psalm 42. There are similar themes, though we will look things in a different angle. So join with me in prayer as we go into... Oh, actually, sorry about that. Um, we also have guests joining us uh, that, that we want to make sure we're introducing and welcoming. Uh, so we have Andrew and Elaine joining us uh, somewhere to my left. Oh, they're, they're in the back. So as a church, let's welcome them together. I'm sure that was very awkward for you both for me to stop my preaching and just to say hello, but glad that you are here. Uh, So let's now pray together as we go into the word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that we can join together as God's people and and as dear friends to hear and see Jesus, our resurrected King. We pray, Father, that you would be the source of our joy and the hope that we have through the dark times and the difficult days that are ahead of us. I pray, Father, as we gather together to worship you, that we may be filled with absolute certainty that you are our life and and the the reason why we can still laugh and sing and rejoice even in times when it can be so despairing. We thank you, God, for the hope that you give to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The the National Drug Institute, or, or the National Institute of Drug Abuse, or the NIDA, Uh, They've been serving teenagers since 1975 through their Monitoring the Future, or MTF, surveys. They use a six-item measure of depressive symptoms to see how teens have been doing over the years and checking up on their physical and mental health. They would often even repeat the same survey on the same students as they get older. And instead of asking the question, are you depressed, they would ask questions like, do you agree with the following statement? I feel like I can't do anything right. Or, I generally feel inferior to others, and many of my friends have a better life than me, to gauge how students over the years and decades are doing mentally and physically. They found that starting from the the boomer generation, our culture really started to shift the focus on the individual's ability to promote oneself and to have oneself see in 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 a more positive light. So self-promotion and self-esteem was really starting to come up during the boomer generation. Then Gen X, those born somewhere around 1965 to 1980, took that further to choose individual preference over the authority's power. The, the, The theme of the Gen X was like, stick it to the man, as it had been said. And then the millennials, those who were born in 1980 to 1994, really brought this sense of individual to a whole nother level, 
where the culture would encourage people to feel good about themselves, not just as good as they should, but even better than might be justified. In other words, the, the, the theme might have been, forget the man. Who cares what they think of you as long as you feel good about who you are? So my generation, the millennials, we grew up with this reputation for being overly confident and having unrealistic high expectations of oneself, justified by more positive self-views, high narcissism, and heightened aspirations compared to previous generations. In other words, since the time of the boomers, each and every generation desired to show that we are better and we are happier than the previous generation. Until Gen Z came into the picture, those who were born somewhere around 1995 to 2012. There, there's, there's something that just snapped in the next generation or in the current major generation where they could not admit that they're happy or pretend to be happy anymore, but they had to just confess, we are miserable and we need help. We can't pretend to be happy anymore. And so studies have shown, and not just in Gen Z, but in our culture as a whole, that there's this great rise of anxiety, depression, and even suicide, especially over the past seven years. Did you know in 2016, it was the first time in American history where the majority of the students going into college have noted, described their mental health being below average. For the first time in 2016, in the history of American college, the students decided, describe their mental and emotional health to be below average. And this trend is continuing, where year after year, every college student going into college saying, I'm entering in with my mind not feeling intact, my emotions not under control. So more and more people these days are seeking for help, seeking for mental help than ever before with less therapists to actually help them. So psychologist Jean Twenge, she stated, Help for mental health issue is essential, but of course, it would be even better to stop depression and anxiety before they start. To do that, it would help to know what causes these mental health issues in the first place. Though some people have genetic predisposition to anxiety and depression, the abrupt rise in mental health issues strongly suggests that genetics is not the whole story. The reason why people are more anxious and depressed is not because we are more genetically inclined to depression and anxiety. There must be something more. So she says, research confirms genetics and environment interact. And among those predisposed to depression, only those who experience certain environments will actually become depressed. For example, sleep deprivation is linked to depression. So those who are predisposed to depression and they don't get enough sleep will become depressed. Though there's a decline in our society, in our day and age, of in-person social interaction, and that has been another factor of why people are depressed these days. But what seems to be the common factor of all these reasons to depression is the rise and the use of smartphones and social media usage. So this psychologist, this professional doctor psychologist, she says, this is how she concludes, there is a simple, free way to improve mental health. Put down the phone and do something else. The trouble in our society is that more often than, than not, depression goes untreated. But I think the question that we really also be asking is, do people really want the prescription? Do people really want the solution? As a youth pastor who's been ministering here for 10 years now, 
I, I tell the students all the time, just put your phones away. Stop going into social media and see how your mental health will improve. And not one of them are willing to take that solution. So the solution is there. Do people really want it? To, to this psychologist who spends her professional career studying and understanding the culture says, put down the phone and do something else. And I want, I want us to see what that something else ought to be, regardless of the reason for our depression. This isn't, as, as I disclose, you know, full discretion here, um, th this isn't going to be a solution to depression. This sermon, this message, and even as I talk about the topic of depression, is not going to be a solution to your depression. What I mean is, I'm not going to tell you how to rid depression in your life. Knowing how people lived in the Bible, as well as Christians before us, as, as we see their lives, it seems like depression isn't something that we rid of in this age. It's something that we deal with generation after generation, person to person. But there are ways to get through them. There are ways to live with it. There are ways to even rejoice in the midst of it. Much like how I touched upon last week with the Apostle Paul, being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And so last week as we looked at how we are to look away from ourselves and look to God in Psalm 42, I want to emphasize more today on the horizontal aspect of life where we're looking outside of ourselves and looking more onto others for our joy and for God's glory. So we are able to rejoice, and these are the three things that I'm, I'm going to cover this morning. One, by striving together. Two, by being certain of life. And three, by choosing others. Rejoicing by striving together. Rejoicing by being certain of life. And rejoicing by choosing others. So let's look at these three things together. First, we, we are able to rejoice when we strive together. Though in prison with the uncertainty of his end, being bound in chains, and even having people preach Jesus out of rivalry against Paul, Paul says, yes, I will rejoice. Paul has a reason to rejoice even when pe people preach out of envy and rivalry because ultimately Christ is being proclaimed. Paul's not someone who takes himself so seriously. Make fun of me, if you will. Do whatever you want that, that, in, in, if you want to hurt me. As long as Jesus is faithfully proclaimed, I will rejoice in that. Now, friends, there are, in our day and age, good preachers. But there are also good preachers who are bad pastors. Yet, even through bad pastors, God saves people through faithful revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? For, through good preaching, through faithful preaching, Jesus is revealed even through the mouth of bad pastors. Ravi Zacharias has come to my mind. He spoke, if, you, if you've known of him, he spoke brilliantly. Great orator. He, 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 was a great, uh, he had a great mind and helped many people come with greater clarity and understanding of the Christian faith and even led some people to the faith. But later on, we discover that he was a horrible person who preyed on women. Now, Ravi didn't save anyone, regardless of his intellect or how well he spoke in the reason with people. He didn't save a single person. God did. So if someone came to faith through his preaching, it doesn't negate their salvation. But it becomes a further evidence that it is truly God and only God who saves people. 
Now, as Christians, we should be angry, sad, and frustrated at the narcissistic and predatory pastors in our day and age. And yet, though maybe not simultaneously on that given time, you can still rejoice that Christ is faithfully proclaimed and people are being saved. In addition to that, Paul rejoices because there is clear partnership with the Philippian church who is praying for him. We can't underestimate, dear brothers and sisters, the gift of Christians to other Christians. As I study Paul's letter to the Philippians, as well as examining his missionary journeys, you cannot escape the fact that one of the reasons why Paul has been able to endure and rejoice in great sufferings, in addition to his faith in God and the gift that God has given to him with the promise and strength by the Holy Spirit, is because he also had people striving with him. Paul has been able to endure and rejoice in great sufferings because he had people striving with him. Now, in, 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 in this letter to the Philippians, he specifically mentions a fellow Philippian named Epaphroditus. He came from Philippi with gifts from the church after the church hearing that he has been imprisoned. And, and, and Epaphroditus is now being sent back to Philippi to deliver this very letter that Paul has written. But when he arrived, he got really sick and almost died. Paul said to the church in chapter 2, verse 27, Indeed, Epaphroditus was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Friends, we cannot and we must not underestimate the gift of God's assembly, the church. We need one another. We need the believing community to help its members endure and persevere and find joy in the midst of suffering and find joy in Christ. Like the study I mentioned in the beginning, the more we spend away from in-person gatherings, the more people experience depression. Virtual church cannot be your church. What's more, and this is something that I hope that we will do as a church, uh, whether, whether it is prompted by ministers or not, that you as a fellow Christian would learn how to be a gift to other Christians by, by being there for members who cannot be here. That we as a church, when members cannot be here, that we would choose to go there. Go to homes of our members who are ill or unable to be physically present. And so as a, as a pastor, I would plead to you, open up your homes for pastoral visitations. My house is messy. I have two children. I've seen messiness. And so it's okay if your home is messy. I don't care about the messiness. I don't care what I step on. I just care about you. And I'm sure all the other pastors can share that same sympathy. That you would open your homes or email us and let us know we cannot come to church today. We're sick or we're ill or we've been having problems with our children. We just can't get ready. We cannot be there. Because for centuries... Pastors and elders of the church, along with deacons and members, would go to people's homes when they couldn't come to the service. And that they would have those mini-services in the homes of their members. I think we as a culture, we lost that art. And as a result, diminished the value of in-person gatherings. Because we're saying, don't come to my house. It's private. It's dirty. It's messy. We don't want you here. We just won't go there. But see, we as a church, we have a great opportunity to go to people's homes when they can't be here if we truly value in-person gatherings. To say, we, we care for you, we care for your well-being, and so we will go and worship with you where you are able to go. 
rather than demanding you to be here when you cannot. Again, I hope that we as a church, not simply because pastors tell you to do so, that you as a church, as a fellow Christian, would learn to be a gift to other Christians by doing so. And friends, how often have we been fighting for one another through prayers? It's so easy that we're fighting against one another, but how often have we been fighting for one another through prayers? I know our men's ministry has been fighting and struggling for the church every first Saturday of the month, and it would be of great value for people to join. But you may be like me, where Saturday mornings are very difficult due to family obligations or it's hard to wake up. And we certainly don't want people to think that you're less of a Christian just because you can't make it to a Saturday morning prayer meeting. Or, or for those who attend, that, that you're not thinking that you're a super mature Christian just because you're attending a Saturday morning prayer meeting. But there is much joy as we share the burdens of one another. There's much joy when we gather together in prayer because the apostle knew the spirit of God is present for his people's deliverance. Paul understands the joy that I receive is not coming from within me. It's coming because people are strengthening me through their prayers and God is strengthening me by his spirit. And so we strengthen one another through our prayers as God strengthens his people by his spirit. This is where we can experience joy, not from yourself, but outside of yourself through the church and the spirit of God. Dear friends, if you really believe that we need to be fighting for one another in, and, and prayer is a way that we can really do it, let's create more prayer gatherings. Let's open our homes and invite people to simply pray with one another and pray for one another. If that's what we're really convinced of and that's what we really believe, that prayer is a way to really fight for one another, that God listens and he heals and he works wonders through the prayers that we lift up to him, well, let's let's. Follow what we say and, and, and create more prayer gatherings and pray with each other. So we have reasons to rejoice when we, when we are striving together. But we have reasons to rejoice by being certain of life. Paul didn't know whether he was going to be released or whether he was going to be executed. He had certain inklings that he would be released, but he didn't know for sure. We know this because in verse 20, he, he says, With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in his body whether by life or by death. Paul was saying, I could very well die in this prison cell. I have no idea. Though I'm, I'm feeling like I'm going to be released, but even if I die, I am certain that Christ is going to be honored today. He did say yes in verse 19, through your prayers, you know, through the prayers of the church and help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this event, this imprisonment will turn out for his deliverance. But that word deliverance, it's the very same word for salvation. And it could mean very various things depending on the context. It could mean that Paul was saying this is going to, be this is going to turn out for my release from prison. I'm going to be saved from these chains. Or it could mean that that he's going to be vindicated from all the accusations of heresy or, or going against the nation of Rome. Or it could mean that he's going to be saved to see the glory of God in all eternity. So Paul's basically saying whether he lives or dies in captivity, he is certain that people are going to know who he worshipped and that he is going to live eternally in God's kingdom. Paul's absolutely certain that should he be executed by the Romans, it's not going to be the end of his life. And just because they take his life will not mean that he has been defeated, that he has lost. He is able to rejoice because he knows that the moment his physical eyes close in death, 
the very next thing that he's going to experience is being with the one who saved him. For some of us, it is a frightening thought to think what's going to happen the moment the eyelids close for the last time and what is it that you're going to see after that. And yet Paul rejoiced because he was so assured that the moment his eyes close, the next very thing that he's going to experience is he's going to be, the one, he's going to be with the one who saved him, awaiting for the resurrection of his body so that with eyes of flesh, he can see his Savior and embrace his Jesus as he is loved by Jesus. Do you share that confidence? Do you share that assurance that one day you're going to meet your Savior face to face and he will say to you, welcome home, my child. So when he is alive, it is to Christ he lives. And when he dies, it will only be a gain to him because he's going to be with Christ who lives forever. Someone who truly believes in this can be very dangerous to this world. Someone who is so confident that whatever you take from me, you will not rob anything from me, can be a very dangerous person to this world that is filled with sin. We say that a person who has nothing to lose is a dangerous person. Someone who has nothing to lose can do crazy things. But to us as Christians, it's not that we have nothing to lose. It's that we have already gained everything and no one can take it away. And we can therefore be very dangerous to a sinful world. We can be very dangerous to tyrants and governments who, who aim to live and rule in evil. Because they cannot shut us up. But we will speak and we will act in ways that would honor God and bless people. For such a person would dare to go to dangerous places simply to make Christ known. And thankfully, in addition to the Apostle Paul, we have many other examples in our past. I have people in mind like Amy Carmichael, who, who, who served most of her life in India as a missionary. David Livingston, who was a missionary in Central Africa. Jim Elliott, along with his friends and family, who, who went and served and, and, and witnessed to the Wadoni people, even though they killed the husbands the moment they arrived on the land. And the list goes on and on. There are several examples, centuries before us, millenniums before us, of people who have been so daring and brave because they knew nothing could rob them of the inheritance that God has given to them. Do we have that confidence and joy that we have already received this great inheritance through Jesus and that nothing can rob us from that? Two weeks ago, most of you, if not all of you, uh, have received an email from me. I sent an email to the church regarding what happened at Rob Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas as well as the shootings that occurred in Buffalo, New York, and Santa Ana, California. Uh, the email was sent in hopes of encouraging you, the members of our church, to, to have more of an eternal perspective, to think and pray about what's been going on in this world. But I'm going to confess something to you all this morning. That wasn't my idea, to send an email like that. In, in fact, I, I never really even thought that I should. It was actually uh, my wife who encouraged me to do it. She being a mom and, and just processing this herself, thought there must be other people who are feeling as distraught as I am. And you as a pastor, Jacob, you, you can go and speak and remind people of what to trust in, who to trust in. And so yeah, it wasn't my pastoral intention to send an email like that in the first place. I, I, I never even thought to do something like that. And if I could be honest, I, I didn't even want to do something like that. 
But my wife encouraged me to do it. And I agreed after thinking about how many of our members in our church are Asian Americans. That there are people out there who will truly hate one another simply because of one's ethnicity or the color of their skin. And so some people might be growing in fear because of the violence that we have seen due to um, you know, the, the hatred of, of other people simply by what they look like. And many of the members in our church are fathers and mothers to young ones who are attending schools. I think many of us could relate to the fear and the anger that people were experiencing with these shootings. And so I, after my wife's suggestion, I thought it was a good idea to send this email. But I was still very, much, I was still very hesitant to send an email that I did. Not because of the fear that it might get political, nor because I thought it was a bad idea. But I was hesitant to send an email because I had to come to grips that losing my children could very well be my reality. And I didn't want to deal with that. It doesn't have to be from a shooting or from any other random acts of violence. But to all of us who are parents in this room, losing a child will always be a terrible and daunting possibility. And so seeing the pictures of grieving parents in Uvalde, I, I realized I needed to have a vision for my children, that they would live to Christ and to even know how to die well, to see death as a gain because they are alive in Jesus. Right, on this pulpit, there was a call for parents, especially for you fathers, to have a vision for your children. And our children should never grow up wanting death, nor should we grow with the desire to die but they should see that when it is their turn to die, that it will be a gain for them. So parents, in addition to having a vision for how your children should live for Christ, how your children, what they can do for Jesus' sake and his glory, I want to encourage you and call you this morning to even give them a call of what death would mean for us as Christians. It's certainly not for our comfort that we would give them such a vision. To remind them from period after period, one day you too will die. And so see death as a gain as you live for Christ. It is not for our comfort that we remind our children that. But it can certainly be for their assurance and fellowship and enjoyment of our Lord. To help our children live in Christ so that death can only be a gain. And this is not only to our children, this is for you too, mom and dad and all the single people in this room. To remember and recall to your minds that we are finite creatures and death could be banging on our door at any moment in life. But live in Christ so that when death knocks, you would only see that it is a gain as you will be with your Savior face to face. And lastly, we rejoice when we choose others. You can feel the tension in the apostle when he says these words in verse 22 to 24. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but, in, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. That phrase when he says, I am hard-pressed, it's another way of saying he is tormented by this tension. He is so tormented. This is maybe perhaps what some of you feel when you are depressed. You are torn apart. You know what you should do. You know what you desire. And your life just doesn't seem to go the way that you had hoped. And so he is tormented within. Because he sees the church and what the church needs. And yet he sees what he desires to be with Christ. To depart from this world and to be with Christ. 
and he doesn't really know what might be a better option for him. But later on, as he thinks and as he further writes this, he knows what's better for him. Right? It is to be with Jesus. After ex- experiencing all the pain, suffering, and persecution, it would certainly be better to die and be with Jesus. Now here, the Apostle Paul, he's not suicidal. When we think of suicide, it's the desire to die as a result of hopelessness. But we have seen in the previous point that Apostle Paul, he's not short of hope. His desire is to rest in the Lord. The reason why death is a gain and something that he desires is not because he wishes to die, but it's because he wishes to be with his Lord. And yet, what does he choose to be the better decision? Not better for him, but what is ultimately just a better decision to remain and continue for the progress and the joy and the faith of fellow believers. He chose others before himself. To depart and be with Christ is far better for him, but to remain in the flesh is far better for the church. And this is so amazing when you think about what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi. He is, more, he is certain at, 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 at this point, he is certain that he's going to be released. And the reason why he's certain is because he's imagining the church glorifying Jesus Christ after God hearing their prayers for Paul. I am convinced that this is going to lead to my deliverance. I'm convinced that I'm going to be released and I'm going to see you soon because you've been praying for me. And, and I'm just imagining how you're going to praise and glorify God as you see me in the flesh recognizing that God has heard your prayers and answered in this way. Now, many scholars believe that Paul is in Rome. So upon release, he would have to travel a far distance from Rome to Philippi, preaching the gospel and facing many other persecutions along the way. And yet, what does Paul have in mind? How the church will praise and glorify Jesus because he's able to come and visit them again. He's not thinking about himself and how happy he can be or how easy this journey can be. He's thinking, despite the persecution, I am imagining how the church is going to be glorifying and praising God when they see me in the flesh because they know that God is faithful and he's been hearing their prayers. So upon imagining their praise and glory to God, he rejoices though he is in chains, though more persecutions and hardships are ahead of him. It's like what my grandmother, who, who lived in a poverty-stricken Korea in the 40s and the 50s, would always say to me when she would see me eat. Or she would say in Korean, 너 먹을 때 보면 내가 배불러. Or you know, it, it translates, I feel full just watching you eat. Right? It's that old Korean saying that is, that I am so satisfied because you are so satisfied. The Apostle Paul is someone who loves the Church of Christ. And that's because he deeply loves Jesus Christ. If you love Jesus, you love the church. If you don't love the church, you don't love Jesus. This is not just Paul's way of thinking. This is what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And what will happen as Paul stays in the flesh for the church? He continues in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. See, friends, we are reminded once again that Christian life is not just about your personal salvation, but a life of service for the purpose of edifying, building up, and bringing joy of faith in others. 
You may not have thought of it, but what Paul is saying is that this is a better choice for him. Not to die and be with the Lord in this moment of imprisonment, but to stay in the flesh and serve the church. Even though his personal desire is to depart and be with the Lord. He is testifying to us that there is greater joy in fulfilling our responsibility for the sake of others than fulfilling our personal desires especially if they don't align with one another, that we would choose others before we choose ourselves. As I mentioned before to you, dear friends, this message isn't a solution to rid your depression. And I'm not saying that your depression won't hit you just because you choose others over yourself. But depression often causes us to think mostly about ourselves, especially depression in our Western culture. Even the psychological questions of of determining whether you're depressed or not are all comparisons of yourself to others. It's a concern of your self-esteem and your self-promotion, how you display yourself to the world. But time and time again, the Christian message has not been, how do you feel about yourself? How do you see yourself? But it has been self-denial and self-forgetfulness for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. It is when we think of ourselves less that we find ourselves to be able to do more and rejoice more. And I know that one of the debilitating effects of depression is the difficulty of thinking of anything else than what you're personally feeling and going through. But dear brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this morning of who it is that dwells in you. You have the God of all creation, the wisdom and power, the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwelling in you. And so it may be difficult and as people, as a person who, have, who has met, uh, many loved ones suffering th- through depression, maybe I should say it is difficult for you. But it is not impossible for you. Not because you can will it, but because of the one who dwells inside of you. So I'm calling you today. There is a solution to dealing with the depression and the things that you're going through. It is a solution that you may not like to hear. It is a bitter medicine that calls you to deal with things that are difficult. That in times when you're so occupied with what you're going through, to take yourself out of it and to remember who it is that saves you. The one who dwells in you. The one who empowers you. Don't look to yourself as these psychological questions would often ask you to do. But rather look to Christ and what he has done and what he is still doing for your deliverance, for your salvation. As you speak to yourselves, as we've seen in Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you troubled within me? Hope in God, and I will sing praise to the God of my salvation, my God. Pray to God rather than listening to yourself and rather than looking to yourself. Look to Christ and pray to him. In times when you are downhearted, look to him. But not only to him, but speak to other people. And pray for, or rather ask for people to pray for you. Friends, do you spend your days wishing your life was better? Constantly thinking and occupying thoughts of yourself, of how your life would be better if you had such and such things going on in your life. May I call you this morning to spend your life, spend your days making other people's lives better. That you would speak the truth to your soul, but speaking the truth to your soul often happens as we speak the truth to other people's souls. This is what God does in my life oftentimes, as, as frustrating it can be, but, but he does it out of grace and mercy and love for me. Uh, and, and I have the privilege of doing this because I'm a pastor. People just want to come and talk to me and ask me questions about the Bible and about God. 
And in, in, in the times when I'm just so angry or sad or depressed, I have youth group students and college students and young adults messaging me on Facebook and other things and says, hey, what does this verse mean? It doesn't even have to do with anything. Just like, can you explain what this verse means? And I would share this verse. And all of a sudden, like, wow, what am I complaining about? This is to my worship. This is who my love and loves me. And so even in moments when I just want to be left alone, people don't leave me alone because they want to know more about God. And as a result, I end up speaking the truth to my own soul. So don't hide away in the shadows that depression so often tempts you to do. Come to the light and join in the fellowship of God's people. Share, talk, let us cry with you, let us laugh with you. Because the more you focus on yourself, the more miserable you're going to be. But the more we help other people look to Christ, the more you're going to rejoice because you can't help but look to Jesus yourself. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, in our day and age, and even in our own personal lives, there are so many questions, uncertainties, and the unknown of what we're going through and what we're feeling. But I pray, Father, whatever our members may be experiencing, that you, O oh God, would be so gracious and merciful to reveal yourself to them and remind them of the great power and the mercy that is given to us as we abide in Jesus, our Lord. Help us, Lord, in times when we're so tempted to put ourselves in the center of everything, where we're just filled with so much love for ourselves. I pray that you may direct our love onto others and our love especially to you. For in you we find our joy. In you, we find our hope and our security. For all things of this world is wasting away. But with you and your church will be forever. For our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and close our time with a song of praise.